You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan is one of the most significant books in all of church history, and really one of the most significant books in all of English literature, and I'm sure it's been referenced before from this pulpit. It's one of the most widely translated books in the world, being translated in over 200 languages. And there are several kids' versions available so that the book is accessible to children. It's such a popular book, not only because of how beautifully it's written, but because of how the book serves as a powerful allegory for the Christian life. The main character in the book is named Christian, and the book tells of his pilgrimage to the celestial city. And there are many dangers and struggles and difficulties throughout his journeys his journey to the celestial city that are emblematic of the dangers and the struggles and the difficulties throughout our journeys in this world. And so the book is incredibly relatable. It stood the test of time for this reason. We, like Christian, are pilgrims on a pilgrimage to the celestial city. And the devil would love nothing more than to cause us to fail to make this pilgrimage, to trip us up on our journey. To cause us to stumble and fall on the rocks or to cause us to melt under the heat of the sun or to be overtaken by a predator or wild animal under the darkness of night. The absolute last thing that our enemy wants is for us to safely arrive at the glory that's awaiting us. And with that, we turn to Psalm 121 this morning. This is a short psalm to be sure as you glance down at it in your Bible, but And it has a fairly simple and concise message. But as we'll see, its message is of vital importance. For the message of Psalm 121 is a message that we as Christians need to be reminded of every day of our lives. And if you don't agree with me, then you don't know how weak you are. We need it every day of our lives as we navigate the dangers and the daily struggles of this world. Which, at least in our current culture, it increasingly seems... That it's all working against us. Everything's working against us. Whether it be our government or media or the public school system or the content Hollywood's putting out or the LGBTQ agenda or what have you. There are so many evil forces behind all of these things working toward our destruction and toward our failure. How many churches and parachurch organizations and Christians do we see all around us capitulating to these cultural pressures? I could list some, but I won't. And this is affecting people on an individual level as well. The amount of friends that I've seen just in my own life over the years deconstruct from the faith and turn away from Jesus. Friends that I used to do evangelism with on university campuses. Completely deconstructing from the faith, whatever that means. Turning away from Jesus. Those are high-level dangers, but what about just the daily struggles and pressures of life? Whether it be marriage, or parenting, or work, or killing and dwelling sin, or resolving some sort of conflict with someone else, or financial pressures, or coping with suffering in our lives, or handling stress, or just dealing with those increasing costs of obeying Christ and following Him in our world as it gets more difficult. As I think about those things on kind of a macro and a micro level, 
it's hard not to be anxious at times. Sometimes I'm prone, prone to that. It's hard not to worry and wonder, will I make it safely on my pilgrimage to that celestial city? How do I know that I'll make it? I won't be like one of my friends. And then we read Psalm 121. And we are reminded that our perseverance as Christians is guaranteed. That our security is sure. That our protection is certain. Because God, the very maker of heaven and earth himself, he is our help. And he is our shade and he is our keeper on this journey of life. And so you and I, Christian, we need not be anxious or fear, but rather we must seek to continually take our eyes off of ourselves, off of this world, off of the dangers, off of the struggles, and instead behold the one who is our help through it all, the one who the Bible says in our text this morning will keep our lives, no matter how weak we may be from this time forth and forevermore. In his commentary on this psalm, and I'll quote from his commentary several times because it's very helpful, W.S. Plumer said it this way. He said, let us remember that there is a constant danger of our slipping and stumbling in our heavenly course. We are very weak in ourselves. It is strange that we are not entirely ruined. But when we remember that God is the hope of his people, the mystery is explained. Almighty arms can hold up even the feeblest of us. And so with all that in mind, let me read Psalm 121. And then I'll pray and I'll ask for God's help as I preach and as you hear the sermon. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for... Your holy and inerrant and inspired word, we thank you that we can hold a copy of it in our hands this morning and glean from it and pray that I would be wholly controlled by your Holy Spirit, that every word that proceeds from my mouth would be anointed by your Spirit and that you would open our hearts and our ears to receive your word this morning, that the lost would be saved, that the weak would be helped, that the faint-hearted would be encouraged, the idle would be admonished, and that Christ would be brought much glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, this psalm, Psalm 121, is part of a collection of 15 psalms known as the Songs of Ascent. These are songs that would have been sung by the pilgrims, by pilgrims in the Old Testament Israel, as they traveled to and ascended upon Jerusalem three times a year to worship God in obedience to his commands to keep certain feasts and festivals. So Deuteronomy 16:16, 16, 16, for example, says. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, which later became Jerusalem, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths. Feast of Unleavened Bread, of course, would entail Passover. And so while they made that journey to Zion, they would sing these songs of ascent to one another, as these songs contained important truths that 
they needed as they sought to complete their journey. And Psalm 121 is the second psalm in these songs of ascent, and it's also classified as a psalm of confidence. Where is the confidence of the psalmist found in this psalm? Well, of course, the psalmist's confidence is not found in himself. It's not found in others, not found in money or in wealth or in circumstance, but his confidence, of course, is found in God. A psalm of confidence then, and there are many throughout the Psalter, is a psalm that expresses trust and confidence in the sovereign care and protection of God as his people encounter the various trials and dangers of life. And one interesting thing to note about this psalm as a whole is that the psalmist never addresses God directly, never actually speaks to God, which is interesting. Rather, the psalm brings encouraging truths about God to those who are listening to it being sung or to those who are reading it, so that their confidence in him might be increased. This is why John Meggs, our worship leader, often teaches us that when we sing God's praises in church, whether it be hymns or psalms or spiritual songs, there's not only a vertical dimension to our worship, but there's also a horizontal one. And so first and foremost, of course, we're praising and we're worshiping the Lord, But there's a sense in which as we proclaim the truths of God's word through song, we're doing so to the encouragement of a a weak or faint-hearted brother or sister that needs to be reminded of that truth. And in some sense, that's what this psalm really would serve to do. This is one of the purposes of a song of ascent. Though it doesn't say anything directly to God, it does have a lot to say about him, which we'll see describing him as our help, And as our shade, and on several occasions, many occasions, our keeper. And these three descriptors obviously are meant to boost our confidence, which is why it's a psalm of confidence. The psalm divides nicely into four stanzas. So you have verses 1 and 2, verses 3 and 4. And you can see it because there's a division there in your your Bible. Verses 5 to 6 and verses 7 to 8. But I'm going to kind of break up the psalm a little bit differently We're going to study and apply this text under the following three headings. Number one, we're going to see the pilgrim's question in verse one. Number two, we're going to see the pilgrim's answer in verse two. And then number three, we're going to see the pilgrim's explanation, which will cover the remaining verses, verses three to eight. As this psalmist travels to Jerusalem, to Zion, he asks a question, he provides an answer, And he gives further explanation. And all of it is meant to serve to boost our confidence in God by reminding us that he is our constant help and protection. And he watches over us throughout our lives. And so that brings us to the first heading. The pilgrim's question. The pilgrim's question. And we see this in verse 1. He begins in this psalm by lifting up his eyes to the hills. Verse 1, I lift up my eyes to the hills. And knowing that this is a song of ascent, and it would have been sung during an Israelite's pilgrimage to Zion, this statement at the beginning of this psalm makes sense. Because Jerusalem, of course, is on a hill. This is a terrain that would have been full of mountains and valleys. And so when the pilgrim looks up to his destination, what does he see? He sees a bunch of hills lying between him and where he wants to end up. He sees many hills standing between him and Zion. There is much imagery throughout this psalm that speak to this idea of pilgrimage. So we have 
The mention of hills here in verse 1. Later we'll see the mention of feet slipping. We see a mention of the sun during the day and mention of the moon at night. Mention of harm and evil. Mention of going out and of coming in. And here in verse 1 it all starts with the sight of the hills. And these hills, as the psalmist sees them, they would have presented a great many challenges to the pilgrims as they would scale them to eventually ascend upon Jerusalem, upon Zion. Of course, their feet could slip at any moment and they could fall down the mountainside. A rock that they're seeking to brace themselves on could give way, unable to support them. There were oftentimes robbers and thieves that would hide among the rocks and crevices. The sun would beat down upon you during the day as you climb the hills. Remember, we're talking about the Middle East. That's a hot sun. There might be predators that would come out of the caves under the darkness of night that you could not see, seeking to devour you. And so there were many challenges and obstacles for the pilgrim to overcome. Who knows what awaits him amongst those hills as he looks to them before he makes this pilgrimage. Who knows how difficult his journey might be. And so the pilgrim looks up to the hills, and as he does that and he thinks about all this, he comes to a realization. And what is his realization? That he needs help for his journey. That he cannot do it alone. That he needs a source of security and protection to ensure his safe passage. And so he continues in verse 1. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Where will my help come from? How how will I have what I need to make it safely to Zion? How will I ensure that I don't get lost or I don't stumble down the mountainside or get devoured by some wild animal or have some kind of harm befall me? And Calvin, in his commentary on this verse, he believes that this question would be, at least at the beginning of his commentary, better asked by an unbeliever. He finds it sort of astounding that a believer would even ask A question with such an obvious answer. Calvin writes, The inspired writer, whoever he was, seems in the opening of the psalm to speak in the person of an unbelieving man. His God prevents his believing people with his blessings and meets them of his own accord, so they, on their part, immediately cast their eyes directly on him. What then is the meaning of this unsettled looking of the prophet who casts his eyes now on this side and now on that? as if faith directed him not to God. In other words, the believer should know right away to look to God for his help. So why is this pilgrim so unsettled as he looks to the mountains that he would ask a question that has such an obvious answer? But then John Calvin goes on to unpack this and he arrives at this conclusion that although the believer knows where his help ought to come from, And knows that he must look to God above all else. When trouble befalls us, so often our minds can quickly and easily lose focus of God. We know we ought to turn to God in the midst of a trial or challenge or danger or threat or difficulty. And yet so often we forget to at first, don't we? We forget to throughout our day. How often do we wake up early in the morning and we open our Bibles and we have time in the Word and prayer, hopefully. And we close our Bible, and we basically don't think about God till the next morning. We're not mindful of Him and our neediness throughout the day. And so we lose focus. 
Calvin continues in his commentary as he works this out. He says, It is indeed certain that in thus speaking of himself, the psalmist exhibits to us a malady with which all mankind are afflicted. But still, it will not be unsuitable to suppose that he was prompted to speak in this manner from his own experience. For such is the inconstancy natural to us, that so soon as we are smitten with any fear, we turn our eyes in every direction. Until faith, drawing us back from all of these erratic wanderings, direct us exclusively to God again. It's true, isn't it? When bad news comes our way or trouble befalls us, we find ourselves in the midst of some difficult situation, what do we do? We immediately start to think through how we can get ourselves out of it, right? How we can deliver and rescue ourselves, how we can take matters in our own hands, what steps we need to take to fix the problem. I can be so prone to have these thoughts as soon as I find myself in a situation like that. How I can take matters into my own hands. When really our first instinct ought to be to pause and go to God. Because He is our help. Who or to what do you look to for help when trouble comes your way? Who or to what do you look to for security in this life? Who or to what do you look to for safety and protection and deliverance in the midst of various troubles? And really, there's only two answers to those questions, right? There's the creator, and there's some created thing. There's God, and there's something far inferior to God, everything else. That's it. And if you look to anything but God to deliver you, and for your ultimate sense of security in this life, whether it be yourself your, your intellect and your intelligence and your money, your resources, your reputation, your power. Or whether you look to someone else, a spouse or a family member, a friend or a pastor or a leader. Or whether you look to a substance. Or whether you look to some self-help book. Or whatever it might be, it will let you down. It will not deliver you. It will surely not bring you safely to that celestial city. It will not bring you safely to glory. And its power, even if it contains any, pales in comparison to the one who made the very hills the psalmist feels threatened by. And so when you lift your eyes up to the hills and you're overwhelmed by all the dangers and evil forces that are working overtime in this world, day and night against you, in those moments, where does your help come from? This is the question he asks. One more observation I want to make before moving on is this. That the psalmist is making this dangerous pilgrimage to Jerusalem precisely out of obedience to God's command. In other words, obedience to God's commands meant danger for the pilgrim. Think about that. But that fact doesn't cause him to turn back in disobedience and then make excuses for his cowardice. Oh, I decided not to make the journey this time because the hills looked a little too dangerous. No. Instead, it causes him to look for the help he needs so that he can still obey God despite the challenges and the hardship that awaits him. And so might that be an encouragement to you? As opposition to the gospel continues to mount in our land, and we know that it is, and obedience to Christ comes with a greater and greater cost, don't turn back in cowardice, but rather look to your divine help as the psalmist does here. 
Which brings us to our second heading, the pilgrim's answer. We've seen the pilgrim's question, now let's look at the pilgrim's answer. Here's the answer that the psalmist gives to this question from verse 1. He says in verse 2, My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. So the pilgrim lifts up his eyes to the hills and he finds himself anxious about the dangers that await him. And what does he do? Eventually he looks beyond the hills to the very Lord who created them. And this is one of those well-known verses, right, that were taught as a young child. My daughter had to memorize Psalm 121 verses 1 and 2 at King Alfred this year. We've sung this in songs and the danger when we come to a verse that we're so familiar with is that sometimes our hearts can remain unmoved by it. Oh yeah, I've heard that verse before. I know that verse. Well, it's my hope and prayer this morning that this wouldn't be the case, that your hearts wouldn't remain unmoved by it, that you would think afresh about the truth and the power communicated to us in this verse. There's a reason it's so well known. My help, first person singular, comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now, if we look to a God, if we served and worshipped a God who was willing to help us, but who wasn't omnipotent, who lacked the power, well, that would be pretty futile, right, to worship such a God. Or if we worshipped a God who had all power, but he was not willing, he was apathetic toward our ultimate state, that would be pretty futile to worship him as well. But the Lord, Yahweh, the one true God who keeps covenant with his people, he is both willing and able to help us. Yahweh is the one who is bound by his word and his love for his people. And he lacks no power to help us in whatever needy situation we find ourselves in. And notice the way that the psalmist describes the Lord. He could describe him in many ways, but he decides to describe him this way. In the second half of verse 2, the Lord who made heaven and earth. So the psalmist points us to the doctrine of creation to remind us of just how powerful this God is who promises to help us. Alan Ross in his commentary simply writes, The doctrine of creation, therefore, is relevant for the life of faith in every detail. W.S. Plumer similarly states, Let us carefully study the works of creation. They reveal the power and other perfections of God in a manner very important for us to apprehend. Nor is it possible ever to bring the heart so to confide in God as we ought until we have right conceptions of his omnipotence. And so all that to say, if you lack faith somehow in God's power to deliver you or to help you, then maybe what you ought to do is look, look to creation more. Go for a walk. Go to the beach. Look at the water. Go to the zoo and look at the animals. Go outside in the darkness of night and stare at the stars for a while and just marvel at his wondrous works and behold his power and his glory. One of the things that my family and I have done for the past few years is find every spring uh, monarch caterpillar eggs in the wild and put them in a small butterfly habitat that we got off Amazon And we watch them develop from an egg to a caterpillar to a chrysalis to a butterfly. And we all learn how this works at a young age, but it just astounds me every single time I see it. It's amazing. 
You find this incredibly small egg on the underside usually of a milkweed leaf. You pluck that leaf and then you pluck some of the milkweed and you put it in the butterfly habitat. And eventually this minuscule caterpillar that you basically need a microscope to see because it's so small emerges from the egg and begins to eating the milkweed leaf. And before you know it, it turns into this rather large yellow, black, and white caterpillar. And some caterpillars are not the nicest looking, but I find monarch caterpillars quite beautiful before they even change into a butterfly. This amazing caterpillar in just a few weeks grows. I don't know how many times its size. And then one morning you wake up and you find overnight that the caterpillar is now in his chrysalis. Somehow that chrysalis just appeared. I don't know. It spins it somehow. And in about two weeks from then, this beautiful monarch butterfly emerges that looks just completely unlike the thing that it came from. It has different colors and different designs and, of course, a completely different body. And it has new wings and it shakes them out for a couple of hours and then it's able to fly off. And so the cycle continues. And in that simple, yet also very complex metamorphosis, what do you see? You see the power of God. And I said that to Aaron. I said to Aaron when we saw this, I'm like, I don't know how anyone can look at that, something so simple and yet so beautiful and complex as the stages of development from a caterpillar to a butterfly and conclude random. Right? It is laughable. No designer, no purpose, no meaning, no beauty. It's just chaotic randomness. Somehow that thing came from nothing. Okay, that's utter nonsense. Maybe you're here today and that's what you would claim. You would claim to be an atheist. Well, the Psalms say elsewhere that you're a fool. That the fool says in his heart there is no God. Because you indeed have a maker, as it says in verse 2. You are not a random collection of molecules. You are not an accident. You are not a bunch of cosmic gas. And you know what? Deep down, perhaps it's very deep down by now in your life, you know it, don't you? You know that you're more than a random collection of molecules and chemical reactions. You know that you have a creator and a maker. Romans 1, verses 18 to 20 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Just look at a butterfly. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Creation reveals to us the power of our creator. I love this simple apologetic that Ray Comfort always gives. He says, when you see a painting, that tells you there was an artist. When you see a building, it tells you there was an architect or a builder. When you see creation, what does that tell you? That there's a creator. It's so simple. Creation reveals to us the power of our creator, that we have a maker. And this maker didn't create us and then leave to leave us to our own devices. No, the Bible says he is the help of all those who acknowledge him as creator and then confess his son as Lord. And so if you're here and you haven't done that, then do so today. 
Stop suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. It will not go well for you. God created you. He's your maker. D.A. Carson always says, God created you. That fact alone means you owe him. God created you, therefore you owe him. You owe him. Turn to him in repentance and put your faith in his son, Jesus, believing he died on the cross and rose again for your sins. And as you do that, he will become for you your help as you navigate the troubles of this world, the maker of heaven and earth. I don't know why anyone would turn down that offer. And to the Christian in the room, the one who does acknowledge their creator and their Lord, would you be encouraged by verse 2? Because we all need help, don't we? So many situations we need help for. How am I ever going to work through this marriage issue? How am I ever going to manage this business God's entrusted me with? How am I ever going to properly steward my finances in these troubled times? How am I ever going to honor the Lord in this situation at work? How am I ever going to raise these kids in the midst of this hostile culture? And I think about that last one a lot as someone with young children. Sometimes I find myself disillusioned and weary and, if I'm honest, even fearful and anxious about the future as I look about all that's going on in our world. And regardless of your ultimate eschatology, certain things are getting Certainly things are getting worse in our, in our land, and so it's hard sometimes not to be anxious. It can be one bad news day after another. That's all the news gives. It's just bad news, bad news, bad news, because it sells. It can be depressing. And I look to my children, and I consider the kind of clown world that I'm trying to raise them in, a world that doesn't even know the difference between a boy and a girl. It's just ridiculous. And I think about all the dangers and the unique threats that they're going to have to face on their pilgrimage that I never had to face on mine. And I can easily slip into a state of misery and just become miserable as I think about all this. And in those moments, when that happens, do you know what I need most? I need the truth of verse 2 to wash over me again. That the maker of heaven and earth is my help. Why am I fearing? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? We already sung it. If God is for us, who can be against us? The Lord is our help on our pilgrimage to glory. The same one who spoke and there was light. The same one who made the rocks and the valleys and the hills and the mountains that we journey through. The maker of heaven and earth. He is our help. He is your help. He is my help. And so rather than looking to the hills and the dangers that they represent, we must look beyond the hills to the one who made them. He is your help, and he will help you in your marriage, and he will help you in your parenting, and he will help you in your workplace. He will help you in your anxiety and in your difficult family situation. Whatever your trouble might be, he is your very present help. That doesn't always mean immediate deliverance, but that does mean ultimate perseverance. So look to him. So we see a question, we see an answer, finally, number three. We see the pilgrim's explanation. The remaining verses of this psalm seek to unpack how the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, will help the psalmist along his journey to Zion. And one of the interesting things you'll notice in these final six verses is that the pronouns change. 
They go from my, which would be first person singular, to you and your, which would be second person. And so it could be now that he is addressing fellow sojourners or others in the congregation. And so in verses 1 and 2, he's addressing his own state, and now he's turning to others and addressing them. Or it could be that he's talking to his inner self. He's talking to himself. And since this is a pilgrim song, I I tend to think that's what he's doing. Did you ever do that? Do you ever talk to yourself? I'm probably not the only one. Sometimes we need to preach truth to our souls, don't we? I think the psalmist, he sees the hills and he, he reminds himself that God is his help and then to drive it home, he begins to preach to himself so that he can further increase his faith that God really is his help. And sometimes we need to do this with God's word. And perhaps there remains some fear or some anxiety or what have you as the psalmist looked to the hills and so he begins to give himself a mini-sermon to really emphasize this one point above all others. And in these verses, we see the word keep or keeper show up no less than six times in six verses. That's a lot. And when you see repetition like this in the Bible, that means that the biblical author is really trying to drive a point home, lest you miss it the first time or the second time or the third time or the fourth time or the fifth time. Maybe you'll get it the sixth time. To keep means to guard or to protect or to watch over. And I like the further explanation that Spurgeon gives, what it means that God keeps us. What a wonderful promise this is. He says, our, co- our soul is kept from the dominion of sin, from the infection of error, from the crush of despondency, the puffing up of pride, kept from the world, the flesh, and the devil, kept for holier and greater things, kept in the love of God, kept unto the eternal kingdom and glory. What can harm a soul that is kept of the Lord? What a comfort. The maker of heaven and earth is our keeper as we make our pilgrimage throughout this world. And so let's look at verses 3 and 4 again. It says, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. According to verse 3, it says essentially there that he watches over every step we take. And this is good news because if he didn't, then the first step we take that he wasn't watching over us, we would stumble and fall. And that would be that. That's how needy and dependent we are. Are you aware of that? Are you aware of your need for constant help? You say, well, how do I know? Well, maybe a diagnostic question to ask is how often do you seek to depend upon God in prayer, even throughout your day? Hopefully you have a time of prayer in the morning, but then even throughout the day, in between appointments, in between classes, when you're driving in your car, when you're washing the dishes, before you go to bed, before every meal, are you depending upon the Lord in prayer? Certainly in the more difficult situations too that we can be so prone to try and fix ourselves. Do you first go to God in prayer? Perhaps the problem for many of us is that we are unaware of just how helpless we really are. I would imagine if we could somehow see the unseen around us, the evil forces at work, we would come to know really just all that God is keeping us from and how helpless we are in and of ourselves. Proverbs 16 verse 9 says that the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. 
We can't take a single step without God. And the good news is he will not let our foot be moved. He will not let it slip. Verses 3 to 4 also teach us that he never sleeps. Okay? He never takes a break. He never punches out. He never nods off. As hopefully you aren't doing in the sermon right now. He watches over us every second of every day. And again, if he failed just once, we would be instantly overcome. But he never fails. And this might be obvious to us. Obviously, God never sleeps. But this is in contrast to the pagan gods. The pagans at this time, they would have given this excuse when God wouldn't answer their prayer. So they'd be praying for something, God wouldn't answer it, and they'd say, oh, our God must be sleeping. Because their concept of God was, and of of various gods, many of them were pantheists, were that the gods were sort of like humans, and they got weak, and they got weary, and tired, and they needed to sleep, and rest, and recuperate. How pathetic. And so this is how they would explain why their prayers went unanswered. This is why Elijah, when he's mocking the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, he says, perhaps your God is asleep and must be awakened. And so as much as he's mocking their God, they might, they might be sitting there thinking, yeah, maybe you're right. Because they believe that their God slept. But not our God. He does not sleep or slumber We fall asleep both physically and sometimes even spiritually, but not God. He is ever awake, watching over every step that we take. Psalmist says that he guards us while we sleep. Early on in the Psalter, he's always watching over us. Verses 5 to 6. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Okay, put yourself in the shoes of one of these pilgrims in Israel in the middle of the Middle East. Just imagine what this pilgrimage must have been like. Put yourself in those shoes. You're scaling the mountains under the scorching hot sun. Okay, think about the potential for dehydration. If I go on a hike in Waterloo, Waterloo's climate, like I'm usually drenched in sweat by the end. That's just me in the middle of our summer. Now, Put yourself on the side of a mountain in the Middle Eastern wilderness under the scorching hot sun. Think about the potential for dehydration or sunburn or heat stroke or collapse. Now in that situation, how valuable would it be to find shade, even permanent shade, as you made that journey? Shade represents here protection and relief. And this is what God is to us on our journey of life. He is our shade, it says, at our right hand. This means that he's with us always, and he's near us. Yesterday, my wife and I were in Toronto for a little bit in the afternoon, and it started raining, and so I got up the umbrella, and I was right at her right side. I was holding up the umbrella, protecting her from the rain, and I was sort of reminded of this verse that God is always doing that for us at our right hand. He is nearer than the hills. He offers you protection and relief, and he watches over you, it says, by day and by night. And so during the day, the pilgrim would face the dangers of the scorching sun, but during the night, he would face dangers he couldn't even see. Wild animals and predators and thieves and robbers who would be lurking under the cover of darkness. God provides protective shade over all of our life by day and by night, by in the light and in the darkness. He protects us from what is seen and from the forces that are unseen. 
And so now let's look at these final two verses, verses 7 to 8. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Like the psalmist could have finished in verse 6, but if there was any doubt that remained as to the full scope of God's protection over our lives, he ends with this sort of crescendo that really encompasses all of the activities of our life. And three times he says again, the Lord will keep, he will keep, the Lord will keep. And there's no room for doubt in these statements. He doesn't say the Lord might keep. He doesn't say the Lord is able to keep even, though that's true. He says the Lord will keep. It's guaranteed. He begins, the Lord will keep you from all evil. Other translations translate this as harm. He will not let evil or harm overcome you or overtake you. Of course, that doesn't mean you'll never experience trials or sufferings or sins or the effects of evil. But what it does mean is that God will see you safely through to the other side. That these troubles will not permanently overtake you and knock you off the path to glory. That he'll keep your life in spite of it. It says he'll keep your life. He will keep your entire life. All of the ups and downs, all of the challenges and struggles, all of the events and activities, in the small things and in the big things, when life is easy and when life is hard. You're going out, it says, and you're coming in, and everything in between. God is the keeper of the pilgrim's entire life. And then notice how he finishes this psalm at the end of verse 8. It says he's keeping us from this time forth and forevermore. That means wherever you are in your life right now, whatever you're dealing with, whatever you're doing with your life, whatever trial or trouble you are facing, if you are a child of God, he is keeping you right now. He's preserving your faith. He's preserving your standing before him. And he will do so, it says, forevermore. One, one commentator said, not merely to the end of time, but without end, forever, for the rest of eternity, God will keep you. He is our portion forever, it says elsewhere in the Psalms. And that last phrase, it ought to still all remaining fear and worry and anxiety that we have. What a promise this is. And again, we need this reminder daily, don't we? As we look after our kids, as we build our homes and our marriages, as we seek to build this church and make disciples as we deal with opposition and spiritual attack and temptation, as we endure suffering, we must remember the Lord is our help and our keeper. Allow me to give one more quote from W.S. Plumer. He says this toward the end of his commentary and I resonate with it. He says, Good men must be very unbelieving to make it necessary for the Almighty to so often assure them of his preserving and protecting care, as he does no less than five times in this psalm. Good men must be very unbelieving to make it necessary for the Almighty to so often assure them of his preserving and protecting care, as he does no less than five times in this psalm. And in fact, he actually reminds us of it six or seven times. And that's how many times I need it. Because I'm one of those people that can be so unbelieving at times. 
And so I want to read verses 3 to 8 over you again. And I just want these promises to wash over you. Whatever your fears or anxieties may be at this moment of your life and of your journey on this earth, let these words wash over you. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And as you lift up your eyes from time to time and you see the hills, you see the dangers and the threats that lie between you and that celestial city, and then you seek to remember these promises and you look to God who is your help, I want you to remember that there is one hill that rises above the rest, and that's Calvary Hill. That's the hill where God's help and deliverance and protection was put on full display for all to see. For this is the hill where our maker was crucified for his people. Where the sinless savior died so that our souls could be counted free. Where Jesus once and for all defeated sin and defeated death on our behalf. Thereby securing safe entry to glory for all those who have repented and who trust in him. What a, what a comfort. The Lord is our help. And so we're going to close in a few moments by singing the very well-known hymn, Amazing Grace, together. And may I remind you of this one stanza that is so applicable to what we've just studied. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. His grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your sustaining and persevering grace. We thank you, Lord, that nothing can pluck us out of your hand. Lord, that you will keep us from stumbling, that we are being kept for God and for Jesus Christ, and that we will one day enter safely into glory. Pray for anyone in this room who is wrestling with doubt, who's wrestling with assurance, who is among your elect, would they take these truths to heart this morning, that they would be encouraged and emboldened and their confidence in you would be restored, that you are helping them along this journey. For those in the room who have not acknowledged you as their maker, would you bring them under conviction of sin even now? Help them to stop suppressing the truth and to turn to you and to acknowledge you as creator and Lord. And may we all go here this morning, Lord, knowing that you're at our right hand, providing shade for us uh, in all that we face. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.